Hello and welcome to another episode of the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics and the Trump presidency. I would like to remind you all that we have just launched our print edition and I'd like to encourage you all to subscribe. You can do that by going to www.spectator.us forward slash subscribe uh, and there you can take advantage of our various offers. I'm joined today by Nicholas J. Fuentes, who is host of the America First show and the nominal head of the so-called Groypers. And we're going to be asking, who are the Groypers? Uh, because earlier this week on Spectator USA, my colleague Dominic Green gave an answer to that question. He said that the Groypers are American fascists who are disappointed that Trump is not the white power president they wanted him to be. And as we discussed a couple of weeks ago on the American po- Americano podcast, uh, the Groypers have been disrupting Republican speakers at various events. And after I discussed this with one of our writers, Chadwick Moore, on that podcast, uh, a few people on Twitter suggested that I should talk directly to Nick Fuentes, who is the head of the group. So here he is. So, Nick, let's get the awkward stuff out of the way first. If you Google your name, you'll read a lot of stuff about how you're a fascist, a Nazi and a white supremacist. Do you disavow those labels? Uh, certainly, certainly I, I disavow these things. I have to say, though, that um, it's hard for me to trust anybody that isn't called these things. You know, to me, part of what we're doing, and, and you know, forgive me, I'll keep this brief because I know this is sort of introductory, but, you know, a word on labels, I think we are a part of a, a major resistance against the mainstream. And so part of being a dissident, part of opposing the mainstream is getting labeled all these nasty things by the mainstream. You know, I think that's how naturally you'd expect uh, that they would treat outsiders. So, yeah, I, I disavow. I disavow. I, I think it's all very performative at this point. But, uh, but, yeah, those are not accurate labels. But, but do you deliberately seek out these labels? No, no, not at all. I, I think I do my show and sometimes it's outrageous. Um, and I push back on these labels because they're pretty dishonest. Uh, so, no, I wouldn't say that I, I bring those on myself, no. But, I mean, let's, so, I mean I'm going to try a few labels on you. I mean, you, are a lot, you seem to be lots of things. You seem to be like a, you're a gamer. You're a, yes. you're, you're a groper. I think you've said that you might be a white identitarian. I'm not sure about that. Is that- um, yeah, I mean, I would say that I, uh, I don't know if I would call myself a white identitarian, but certainly I talk about white identity. Okay. Uh, you're a nationalist. You'd, you'd, you'd agree with that. You're unironically nationalist, right? Yes, an American nationalist, absolutely. And uh, I think it would be fair to say you're, you're interested in fascism. Um, I don't know. I would say that I'm interested in maybe an academic sense, but I, I wouldn't say that I would describe myself as a fascist. I might have more authoritarian curiosities or sympathies, but I don't know if it would be fair to say that I uh, identify that way. Uh, and let's talk about uh, nationalism, because I think that's, that's probably a fair description of what you are. To what extent is race bound up with your idea of nationalism? Well, I really like the quote by Patrick Buchanan. I see Patrick Buchanan in many ways as the father of our movement. Uh, He ran for president, of course, twice for the Republican nomination in, I think, 92 and 96, and then ran for the Reform nomination in 2000. Paleocon is another label that you'd accept. Oh, what's that? Paleocon is another label that you'd accept, which is a a sort of Buchananite label. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Exactly, sorry, sorry, right. I interrupted you. I interrupted um, Well, yeah, yeah, that, that is fitting, right, because Pat, Patrick Buchanan was a leader of the paleoconservatives. But, um, you know, he said something about race. 
uh, which I find to be descriptive of where I'm at on, on the subject. He said that race is not everything, but it isn't nothing. And that's sort of my view of it, which, you know, a lot of people will hear what I have to say about nationalism. And because we're in a culture where people don't really talk about race in that context, and, you know, we have sort of this race-blind, uh, you know, very egalitarian view of the country that anybody that talks about race in the way that I do may come across as a racialist or race fixated or something. But I would simply say that um, obviously it's a, a very big source of identity for a lot of people in the country. And obviously that has to be contended with in some sense when we talk about national identity. But you, I think you have said you don't like the idea of race mixing. Do you, do you disavow that now or, or was that, or were you being ironic? I, I just get, I don't quite get it. Uh, no, yeah, I, I do not support race mixing. Um, but what does yeah, that, no, I, and I, I don't, I don't know why that's so controversial, you know, it's, but I know, don't know what I that, guess you're what not you, allowed to have that opinion, but, um, but, but what, yeah, I get a lot of pushback for that. But what, what do you mean by that? Do you mean, you know, what eugenicists would call miscegenation or do you mean, what, what, what do you mean by race mixing people intermarrying between races? Uh, yeah, I, I just don't. That's not something that I would do. It's not something I would want my children to do. And generally, I don't understand why people do it. You know, I, I guess I'm not in a position to tell people what they do. My religion doesn't say that it's a sin or morally wrong, but it's just really against my values. You know, I was, I'm, I'm a traditional person, and I think it's a very traditional view that you sort of go with your own people. And I think there's nothing wrong with that. Um, I wouldn't say I have a lot of friends that are mixed race. I, I don't like dislike people that engage in that, but it's just not something I uh, it's just not something for me. So if you this is a rather cheesy question. So forgive me if you fell in love uh, with a girl who was uh, Asian, say, would you would you try and stop yourself? Um, well, I don't know if I would say I would stop myself, but I certainly wouldn't uh, marry somebody like that. Um, yeah, I, I don't dispute that people can fall in love with people of another race, and, and there's nothing to say that there's nothing that it's not valid to fall in love with another race. It's it's perfectly valid, and and that does happen. But, um, you know, I just think about other priorities. You know, I think we live in a culture where uh, we only think about passion. You know, what if you fall in love? Well, I think about my children. I, I want my children to look like me, and my grandchildren to look like me, and that's another value that I have that I consider when I think about you know, who I would get, be in a relationship with. Well, I disagree with you violently there. I don't want my children to look like me. I hope, I hope they don't. <laughs> but I think, so, I mean, that, that is very interesting that you're, 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 you, you know, you do admit to that because I think a lot of people would see that uh, and they wouldn't have to be kind of uh, woke or on the left or even part of conservatism, Inc., to think that that is quite uh, a hardcore racialist view of the world. I don't think it's hardcore. I think uh, it's, it's interesting how it goes that, I think up until very, very recently, this was uh, the mainstream, maybe even the consensus position for most people. And it seems like in the last like 10 to 15 to 20 years, it went from something that became tolerated to accepted to normalized. And now you can't have that position. You know, I think I said that uh, I was recorded secretly during a private conversation where I said, you know, I don't really care for the interracial and, um, you know, I, I get asked about that. That happened like two years ago. And now everybody's asking me about it to this day. And it's like, so you can't you can't have that position like you, you must have the opinion that you support race mixing or else, you know, you're some kind of, uh, you know, terrible person. So I would say that it's it's a very mainstream position. I would say it still is. And up until very recently it was the only normal position. 
Um, and, and I don't think there's any shame in having that value. But it's, I mean, I think you're a Catholic, aren't you? Is that right? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think if you take that position, there is a sort of follow on that you therefore think the children of mixed race couples are somehow inferior to, to, your, to your own race. No, not necessarily. I don't, I don't see how that follows. I think that's a bit of a non sequitur. I wouldn't say that children of mixed race couples are inferior. Um, as a Catholic, we believe, of course, that everybody's equal before God. Everybody's equal in dignity and worth before God. And I certainly subscribe to that. It's just that, um, you know, for my own children and for my own family, uh, that's that's my value. And, um, you know, like my, my father is half Mexican and my mother is 100% Italian. So obviously it's not a perfect fit there. And, and people have pointed this out. But, you know, I didn't control the circumstances of my birth. I can only control the circumstances of, you know, my children hypothetically in the future. And, um, you know, I don't know why I, I have to conform to the mainstream view on this. I, uh, I actually think that this is something that's been forced on everybody. I think if you really got down, I think a lot of people would probably agree with me. Well, a lot of people wouldn't want to marry someone of a different, of a different race. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think, um, you know, it's only something like 7 or 8% of couples are, are interracial. So, yeah, I think even if people don't say it, they certainly, uh, they certainly vote with their wedding bands, so to speak. Okay, okay. So, but let's move on to what you were, what, what, what's going on between you and Conservatism Inc. Because I think this is interesting. A lot of people, I think it's fair. Let, let's talk a little bit about where you come from. You were, you, you were very interested in Donald Trump. You, I think you got very excited by his election. And is it fair to say you've become disenchanted with not necessarily him, but with the movement, and that this kind of rebellion you've launched? against Conservatism Inc., which which we talked about a little bit two weeks ago on the podcast. That is be- Absolutely. That's because you're, 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 are you disenchanted? I'm very disenchanted, yeah. I, I think that's um, a very common sentiment with the core supporters of Donald Trump during his campaign in the primary, uh, moreover than the general election, which is to say that, you know, what his candidacy was about for a lot of us was immigration restriction, uh, non-intervention in foreign policy and uh, trade protection. You know, those to me were the three core issues. And it seems to me that the movement and the White House both had been co-opted by um, a lot of the elements from, for example, the Rubio campaign or the Cruz campaign or, you know, the Bush White House from 2008. And they've co-opted it to make it about the free market, tax cuts, uh, you know, things that benefit the rich, and ultimately things that benefit the military-industrial complex. So, um, and and also uh, big agriculture through cheap labor. So, I, I think that yeah, a lot of people, including myself, are very disenchanted with the direction things have gone in. But don't you think it's a bit inevitable? Because I mean, Trumpism in a way destroyed the the you know this has been said a lots of times that Trumpism sort of took over the shell that was the conservative movement, but it's not going to completely replace it. There's still a conservative movement that was that's been there for 40 years and so you're going to have to deal with those ideas that are still kicking about within it. Uh yeah, I mean of course that is a reality. I would just think that Trump would be fighting against that maybe a little bit more strongly and in any case, you know, I think Steve Bannon said this after the election um which I, I don't I don't I have sort of mixed feelings about Steve Bannon, but you know, he said that we're going to be fighting this revolution so to speak. Um, this sort of ideological coup within the Republican Party, he said every day for the next you know three decades or something like that. You know, so so I agree with you that you're right. The establishment still exists, and we're 
after we dealt a big blow to them with Trump winning the primary or rather winning the nomination and then winning the general, we still do have to fight with them. And, and that's sort of what we're engaging in now is this sort of reconquista, so to speak. We're trying to launch a bit of a new offensive before the 2020 election to reassert some of the things that Trump ran on that maybe he's lost his way on since the election. But I think this might be why uh, a lot of people have been quite interested in what you're doing, because it it's quite revolutionary and it, it feels quite left wing in many ways in that it's it's kind of trying to establish you're you're just trying to establish a purer nationalism than what you see has been corrupted within trumpism is, is that a fair criticism if it's a criticism um, i don't know yeah i would say that uh it's it's not maybe it's left wing in terms of tactics but it's obviously very reactionary in terms of substance and yeah, I mean, we are trying to make it a, a pure nationalism. We are trying to maintain um, and preserve a lot of the things that Trump fought for in the election. So, so certainly, yeah, I, I don't, I don't see anything wrong with that. Okay, and uh, let's talk a bit about irony because this is where I get lost, and it might be because I'm not a Zoomer. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I, th- I think I guess I'm X or whatever. I, I mean, what? How do you think you use irony? Is is it to advance what you're trying to do? Is it just because you want to be funny? Is it to get a bigger audience? What is irony for you? What is joking for you? That's a pretty good question. I would say that, um, you know, irony is in a lot of ways a tool which, uh, on the one hand, it, it provides an entertainment value. I have a very ironic sense of humor. And this is why people like to watch my show as opposed to um, watch or read a lot of other conservative content. You know, it's because my show is fresh and it's edgy. It does sort of challenge things. It it does uh, sort of touch on some taboo subjects. And irony is a way to do that in a way that is entertaining and and sort of lighthearted. But it's also a tool to come up to the line, I think, on subjects that are a bit more controversial. And people have pointed that out. I don't think it's exactly a groundbreaking take to say that people use humor or comedy to push the envelope. Um, so, yeah, I think I think it does have that sort of uh, dual effect of, on the one hand, it does provide entertainment value. It's funny. But at the same time, I think it also uh, is a rhetorical tool. And it's one of our stronger ones. But do you also think it might be part of your the appeal of your show, which does seem to be growing, is that people don't really know when you make jokes about the Holocaust or something, people don't really know. Does he mean it? Does he not mean it? Is is he somewhere in between? Isn't that your appeal as a as a as a media person? Absolutely. And, uh, and and the reason being is because, you know, I think we all realize more or less that we have, uh, you know, people have called the political correctness. I would say it's almost a form of soft totalitarianism when it comes to language in the sense that we all know that there are certain positions you just simply can't have. There are certain things you just can't say. And so what irony does is it helps us sort of, like you said, get in the middle where we can use we can say things that are provocative and we can get people thinking about certain issues without exactly taking a hard and fast stance you know so for example with some of these conspiracy theories or some more taboo subjects we can use irony to sort of get people thinking about a subject in a more heterodox or or other way whereas if you said these things red in the face angry completely seriously you know the tone would in a way alter the meaning and also you know maybe you'd open yourself to more liability that's not to say that everything i say on the show is unironic and it's you know it's just a sort of um you know, dishonest way to, to cover up my views. It's not it exactly, but it is a way to to be provocative, I think, without 
um, offending too many people, if that makes sense. And you, there's quite a, uh, perhaps a good example you put on Twitter yesterday of, I think you said, you were saying that, of course, Jews don't run the media and don't run banking and all these institutions. And, you know, we should stick up for them. I mean, I'm probably getting your wording wrong. But there you were using a joke to actually say you do think Jews run banking and Hollywood and all these things, right? Is That's what you were doing there. Is that? I don't want to be over literal. Um, yeah, and the point of that was obviously to parody uh, these people that have come down on me. You know, part of the irony is we are, and it's part of, again, this larger battle against this establishment and this linguistic control that, I mean, they want us to believe this line that I made a tongue-in-cheek joke about the Holocaust a year ago, and everybody is so wounded by this, everybody is so offended and hurt by this, and this is such a big deal, and I was so out of line for saying that. And so the point of, of that clip, which you mentioned, where I said, uh, you know, well, you want my unironic take? Well, if anybody has an actual problem with Jews, you know, these totally helpless people that have no institutional backing, well, they're going to have to go through me. Of course, it's to parody this idea. Again, this, this totally, like, delusional game that we all have to participate in. We have to pretend to be so offended by this and pretend not to know what's going on. Um, so, yeah, I, I think in that case, that was a little bit of pointed irony, for sure. Okay. Um, uh, another thing that a big area of interest for you is, is demographics. Mm. But uh, yes. in, in, a, in as much as I understand, and I admit I don't understand a lot of this stuff, is that I think you occasionally seem to think that the battle's lost, right? In terms yes. of saving America from, from, from mass immigration. So how, right. so, but, but you're determined not to, a lot of people in your sort of orbit, perhaps, are fatalistic. And they're, they're do you call it black-pilled? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. What does black pill mean? Can you explain that to our listenership? Because I don't think I understand it, let alone not. some of our listeners might not. Sure. So, I mean, uh, you understand the red pill, blue pill dichotomy that, you know, you take the red pill and this this wakes you up about what's what's really happening, so to speak, beneath the surface. And blue pill, this, you're, you're buying into the sort of Plato's shadows on the wall of the cave. The black pill, and, and all these pills sort of have different connotations. The black pill means that, you know, the real awakening after the red pill, uh, you reach this understanding that, you know, there's really nothing that can be done the future, as you said, is, is we have this fate that is bad. <laughs> the, the demographics are baked into the cake. Uh, certain things cannot be changed easily. There will have to be a long period of darkness or strife or struggle. And so the black pill says, well, after you're woken up to what's happening, the final awakening is realizing there's really nothing you can do about it. It's, it's kind of set in stone. Um, so I, I would not say that I'm black pilled, but. Uh, yeah, there are fellow travelers who are. But do you symp you sympathize with people who are black pilled? Absolutely, yeah. And I, I, um, I think some of it is true, but uh, I guess I have maybe just a different attitude about the future. I have maybe just a different mentality for how to approach these things. Maybe we agree on the same facts, or that we're heading towards the same trajectory. But I guess on uh, in terms of attitude, I feel differently about it. But if you are black pilled and you're and you think that uh, civilization is uh, irreparably in danger, then it does justify uh, perhaps not caring at all and, and committing acts of violence and things like that. I don't think that's necessarily true, um, only because, you know, for example, I'm Catholic. And so I look at violence and uh, obviously it's sinful. Um, 
you know, whereas some people have this very secular ends justify the means approach. I, of course, have to think of politics, not just in terms of outcomes, but also in terms of process. You know, we have a uh, we don't have a consequentialist ethic. We have a deontological ethic. So I would say that one can acknowledge that maybe things are headed in a bad direction and maybe things are beyond repair. But uh, we do have to conform to some basic rules for how we're going to cope with that. So I think maybe that's and that's another, I think, key distinction between me and a lot of the extremists is a lot of extremists out there who you might say are violent or prone to that kind of thing. Um, you'll find that a lot of them aren't very religious. And, and that's one of the distinctions is my Groiper sort of thing or America First is deeply rooted in Christianity. And I think that makes us uh, much more moderate in that sense than, than other groups. And to go back to the feeling fatalistic about it, if you if you think the sort of demographic battle is lost, uh, I think I heard you once say we've got to come up with imaginative solutions to help the demographic or to, to reverse the demographic crisis, undo the demographic crisis. What might those be? What might you be able to do? Well, obviously, I think a place to start is to halt the demographic change. You know, this is something that is ongoing. So what I what I have said, and this is my position, is that um, America is a multiracial country and it will only become more multiracial as time goes on. Uh, simply due to the fertility rates. You know, the uh, white fertility rate is below replacement and the non-white is above replacement. So uh, you just look at the math behind this and with or without immigration exacerbating it and facilitating it further, you're going to have this demographic change. Now, the question is, how dramatic does it have to be? How rapid does it have to be? And that we can control by shutting down immigration and also with policies that will begin to, uh, you know, maybe turn around the fertility rate. Because, of course, the reason I think that they've brought in all these immigrants is to make up for the decline in the native white population in America in the sense that, you know, obviously whites were the vast majority 50 years ago, 90 percent of the population. And then the birth rate began to fell off or, or began to fall off around the time of Generation X and Millennials and to sort of make up and compensate for demographic stagnation and ultimately decline, they brought in more people. Well, maybe you don't have to bring in more people if you could just simply turn around that rate. So, you know, affordable child care policies, affordable family uh, building policies would probably be part of my platform. But first and foremost, it would be stop the bleeding, arrest and retard this change, and then maybe we could uh, figure out how we're going to get along together. And as, as someone who supported Trump, I think you campaigned for Trump, didn't you? Do, do you now think, I mean, have you given up on him as a president who can reverse, as, as a president, as a leader who can reverse demographic change? Do you think he's no longer your guy? Uh, I think he still is our guy. The, the problem is that he has filled up the White House with, as I said, people that are simply opposed to his agenda. You know, for example, a lot of the policies that he's endorsed or proposed are ones that we would obviously be in favor of. You know, I think there was a report that came out that showed that last month we had uh, zero refugees come in for the whole month of October. And that was the first time, I think, maybe in history. So things like that, um, I think the RAISE Act would cut immigration in half. I mean, they would be a start. I don't think they would be sufficient, but they would be a start. And I certainly think that compared with his predecessors and his contemporaries, he has obviously come a long way from where we used to be. I mean, we had a president, or our last nominee in 2012, Mitt Romney, 
was talking about pathway to citizenship for illegals. You know, so we went from a president that wanted amnesty to a president that wants to shut down the border, shut down illegal immigration, deport the people that are here illegally, and begin to work on the problem of legal immigration too. So I think we look at this as as an incremental change, and so we do support him for that reason. And how much do you think Trump ever really believed in this stuff, or, or, or to what extent was he a political entrepreneur who just spotted that this is the gap in the voter market, the voters want to hear this about immigration, and I'm the person that can say it? I think there's a little bit of both. I mean, obviously, he's an opportunist. I think you see that from his business dealings, which I think is, by the way, a positive trait to be an opportunist. But at the same time, if you look at the history of his message and what he's been saying, uh, he's been talking politically for the better part of three decades, I think. You know, if you go back to some of his interviews uh, in the 1980s or the 1990s, he's talking about the same things. Uh, trade, foreign wars, to a lesser extent, immigration. So I, uh, I used to be a, a much more hardcore Trump defender maybe a year ago when there was a lot of skepticism in my community regarding, for example, uh, his missile strikes in Syria or this deal with DACA he was trying to construct. Um, but if you go over the last two or three decades, you'll find that he's been pretty consistent. So I'd find it hard to believe that he would be you know, conjuring up these beliefs purely out of political or personal opportunism, uh, you wouldn't have that kind of consistency, I don't think, if that were the case. Okay. And so if, um, so to, 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 make, to make Trump uh, great again, <laughs> you'd need to get rid of what you call conservatism, Inc., right? Yes. Okay. Yes, and so to, uh... tell, tell me about your war. Where, where did it start? Because it's, it's quite a recent thing, isn't it? The, 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 the sort of the active war. Against yeah. Oh, yeah. This is only about four or five weeks old at this point. Can you tell me, I, I realize we're, we're probably going over time now, but if can you tell me a little bit about how it began? What what triggered it? Were you, I think, were you barred from an event? Is that you were barred from CPAC? Was that when it began? Um, so it was actually a Politicon. I, I would say that, um, you know, this tactic of showing up to these, it's Turning Point USA is the group. And the, the strategy, the tactic, is that we have been sending people to show up during the Q&A session at the end of uh, Charlie Kirk. He's the founder of this organization. At the end of his monologues, we would send people to show up for the Q&A and ask him these provocative questions, critiquing him essentially from a right-wing perspective, from his right. And so this actually started uh, with, uh, it was a very grassroots thing. It was two followers of my show who kicked this all off. I said it was great. You know, I said on social media, we should try this again tomorrow. And sure enough, the next day, Charlie Kirk held an event and we had four questions at the Q&A the next day. I said, you know, this is this is really something. Let's try it again the next day. And so at the third event in the University of New Hampshire, we had four more questions. And then when it really, I think, reached a sort of terminal velocity was I went to Politicon, the Politicon convention in Tennessee. And I tried to attend one of Charlie Kirk's events to get a uh, question in during his Q&A. And I was actually barred from entering because I think he became aware of what we were doing and that I was helping to coordinate it. And obviously, I think this uh, is pretty hypocritical given that his message and his brand is built around free speech, open discussion, open debate, dialogue, you know, the so-called marketplace of ideas. And so since then, I think it really has just continued to escalate where we've been sending more and more people and completely dominating these events. In some cases, uh, we shouted him out of UCLA when he canceled the Q&A. So that was the genesis and, and really where it began to take off. And th there seem to be three areas you go particularly hard after 
Kirk and Dan Crenshaw, the congressman, which is well, demographics, Israel, and gay rights, right? Those are, yes, those, are the three, those are the three areas in which you question them the most. And I mean, so I've recently they started firing back, I suppose, what you call conservatism, Inc. fired back. Ben Shapiro did a speech in which he was obviously talking about you, but he didn't mention you by name. And then Charlie Kirk kind of uh, attacked some questioners, right? So Yes. I mean, they've really bullied every other conservative organization out of the marketplace, you know, whether it's uh, CRs or YAF or, or anything like that. Um, he's got the president's ear. He's, he's hanging around the president and his son all the time at these events and fundraisers. So, no, I think he was a great sort of lightning rod or a great focal point to direct this energy because I think he epitomizes sort of everything that's gone wrong with this administration. That somebody like Charlie Kirk is so welcomed and they're so friendly to him given what he is and what he's about and personally and politically, I think that epitomizes this sort of conservative ink takeover over uh, the Trump administration and, and how it's co-opted the Trump movement. So I think he is the perfect foil for what we're trying to do. But do you ever think you get into this mindset where if an institution like a, a university that you would think is antithetical to what you want, if 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 they welcome someone like Kirk, that must mean he's bad. You're not necessarily thinking about whether what he's saying is right or wrong. You You just think it must mean he's bad that he's welcomed in places where you should be reviled. Well, I think that's certainly part of it, but um, I, I have to say that that was never part of the, the calculus behind this. Um, the argument was always that Charlie Kirk is, is bad because of the things that he says. You know, I, I never had a bone to pick with Charlie Kirk because... Well, you seem to have a, you have a problem with his teeth. I've noticed this. <laughs> yes. Yes. I, I don't know what's wrong with them. They're very small and they seem to be pointed inwardly in the ratio with his gums is a little bit off. It's just sort of... I don't know. It's a curious detail. But, um, yeah. So You can see why people do accuse you of fashion when you take this interest in physiognomy and, you know, people's looks. I don't, I, how could you call somebody a fascist? Because I call them ugly. That makes me a fascist. I think that just... I'm well, the weird the obsession truth. with teeth is... I mean, I'm saying this as a Brit, and, you know, we're very sensitive about the fact <laughs> we've right, got right. terrible teeth. But, but a sore spot, yeah. it's a sport. You hit a sore spot there. But, I mean, it, it is... I mean, you are interested in physiognomy, right? It's one of your... Things you talk oh, about. Oh, yeah, certainly. Physiognomy, yeah. constitutional psychology, certainly. And I mean, that ties into genetics, which ties into kind of some of your other thinking about race and things like that. And that might encourage people to think that you are, think you're a fascist. Well, I mean, we believe that race is real. Um, and I don't know if that necessarily makes me a fascist. I think fascism is actually a very specific ideology that involves, you know, things like corporatism and says something about how government is structured. Um, but the idea that race is a biological reality is something that is, I mean, it is empirically true. It's historically true. And again, up until very recently is something that everyone acknowledged. It's only in the last maybe five to ten years in a very particular way have we engaged in this race denialism, this idea that race is a social construct that all it means is skin color. I think we all know that race means a little bit more than skin color. And that's not to say, you know, people are very quick to jump to conclusions and say, oh, well, that means that, you know, you're, you're sort of this guy that believes in uh, phrenology and, you know, this classification and hierarchy of races. You know, no, 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 that's jumping the gun. We just simply believe that race means a little bit more than skin color. And the science says that, the history says that. I mean, we can see it with our eyes. Let's just get this on the record. Your hatred with Charlie Kirk does not begin with, with the teeth. <laughs> no, no, no. That's, uh, that's only part of it. It just, it just helps. 
That's a manifestation of his uh, his repulsiveness, I would say. <laughs> okay, and so let's just go with where this where this war against conservatism Inc is going. Is it going to carry on? Have you have you won? Have you lost? What, what what's going on? Yes. So phase one is complete. Uh, His culture war, that was the name of his tour. It was a limited number of dates and it's a college tour. So so the semester is winding to a close in America. So phase one of the Groyper war has been a decisive victory for us. Completely unambiguous triumph. So we've won phase one. Uh, but there, there is going to be sort of an epilogue. He is going to be at, uh, he's hosting this annual conference, one of their big conferences in Florida in December. It's called the Student, what is it, the Student Action Summit. So he'll be hosting that. We will have a presence there. I don't want to give away too many details. Bit of a surprise for old Charlie. Uh, but phase two, I think, will begin in the spring. I'm sure they'll start back up again in the next semester. And um, we might be going on the offensive a little bit in a different way. I think I might be hitting the trail a little bit more. So I don't want to give away too much, but the Groyper Wars will continue. We're sort of doing this winter quartering. Uh, the Groypers are resting, they're relaxing, and we're getting prepared and consolidating for phase two. And how do you plot? Do you have kind of meeting? I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to expose the inner workings of the Groyper movement, but I'd just like to know, do you, I mean, do you have kind of tactical meetings? Oh yeah, it's um in in a way it's a very decentralized movement. We don't have there's sort of pros and cons to this that we are not a hierarchical uh, entity or a legal entity. Um, we just sort of it's almost like blockchain in the way that we sort of crowdsource a lot of different information from a lot of different people. And there are people that are more prominent that you know I, I'm not going to deny the existence of sort of a Groyper General High Command, you know Groyper Security Council. Uh, <laughs> but certainly there is this sort of ongoing process where individuals and people on on all levels, you know, of different, you know, cloud or involvement are participating. So um, it's funny to me that we are probably the worst nightmare for Charlie Kirk, and it's me, and it's a few other internet people that they, I'm sure they never took seriously, sort of scheming on Discord late at night, playing Fortnite, you know, or playing Modern Warfare. So that's a bit amusing to me. But yeah, we are, we are scheming a little bit. There is some planning going on. And what about you yourself? Because, uh, I mean, you're obviously taking great risks with your own, I'm not saying that you're into this for money or anything, but you're obviously taking great risks with your own kind of uh, ability to broadcast, right? I mean, your YouTube channel could get taken down if somebody at YouTube decides you're unacceptable. Uh, And we've seen with other people similar to you that this can shut them down really very effectively. Are you worried about that? that? Does that keep you up at night? Uh, yes, I am concerned about deplatforming, and that's that's sort of the tough thing. Is um, you know, I would say the question is this: probably I've been able to stay on the platform as long as I have. I imagine because I've probably flown under the radar. I would think that kind of no matter what I say, I I would mostly be safe because. I'm not a, I, up until recently, was not a very prominent channel on YouTube. But, I mean, this is what you run the risk of is, you know, either you stay small and not make an impact and maybe you get a couple more months on YouTube, you know, or you blow up and you get more exposure, more visibility. It brings more risk, but obviously you're making an impact. And I would prefer the latter. So it does concern me. But, you know, when you read Google's uh, terms of service or Twitter's terms of service or any of these things, we're not really breaking them, you know? So we know that obviously they're very partisan and very biased, but I've read the community guidelines front and back, and I'm very careful to not break them. 
Um, it's not a hateful ideology. My show is not hateful. It, it doesn't, um, you know, preach violence or anything like that. It's it's hardly any different from very mainstream people like Ann Coulter, Michelle Malkin, or Tucker Carlson, for that matter. So, I mean, I do worry because I think Google takes great liberties with that kind of thing, but um, it, it really shouldn't be a concern. Do you worry when uh, Benny Johnson, as he called, uh, did a sort of series of tweets where he he took out your sort of worst moments, right? And I think you say that they were sort of taken out of context or that you were joking or whatever. But do you worry that people watching them don't realize that and they might find it very hurtful? I mean, does that is that is that a concern? Not really. Um, only because, you know, you're going to say Ben Shapiro this... like the facts don't care about your feelings. Is that... <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. All these people offended. Benny Johnson should just understand that facts don't care about his feelings. Okay, yeah. Uh, you know, racial IQ statistics not care about Benny Johnson's feelings. Now, but but on, on the broader point about this, I would say that we can't really live like this, where we have to be so careful about what we say. That you know, I live stream every weeknight. I've been doing this for three years for two, three hours a night, to be so careful that, you know, for the volume of content that I produce, I have to be doting over every word that I say so that somebody can't clip 10 seconds of it and post it and make me look bad. I mean, the the kind of headache that that would require would be so limiting in terms of creativity and humor and, and even trying to be insightful, you know, trying to get people to think. I think we have to reject this kind of controlled thinking, this shackled thinking, as I like to call it, where we have to be so careful not to offend, not to push the envelope, whatever, lest, you know, one of these conservative gatekeepers pull out uh, the clip, you know, or the soundbite or whatever and uh, try and spin it a certain way. I think if you're a free thinker, you understand that sometimes you do have to play devil's advocate or sometimes you do push the envelope. It doesn't mean you're a bad person or you're a nasty person or a jerk or something, but it means that you're willing to be intellectually daring and take risks. And I think that's important when you're trying to find the truth and when you're trying also to make excellent content, which is what I try to do. Nobody watches Benny Johnson's content and is excited by it or tickled by it or you know they find it really interesting because it's safe, it's sterile, it's corporate, and that's why ultimately it doesn't change anything. It doesn't move the ball forward. It serves the interests of the status quo. So, you know, it's something I'm very passionate about, obviously, but I reject that, this whole premise of we're going to take 10 seconds and blow up your life. If people want to know what I'm about, you know, they can watch my show. It's on every night at 7 o'clock or or 7.30. Okay. And and uh, lastly, because we haven't really touched on this at all, uh, uh, you're you're still very young. You're 21 years old, right? Yes. And it seems to me that quite a lot of your, I mean, anger sounds as though I'm sort of patronising, and I don't mean to, uh, but but you, you're quite angry about a lot of things. And uh, is how much of that is generational anger at boomers and the sort of dumb older generation who don't understand your jokes? Uh, that's a great question. It's It's a lot of rage. It's a lot of generational rage. And if you look at my generation or even the one that came before me, there is, I think, an anger because we have come up in a society that doesn't make any sense. It's one that's hostile to my existence. You know, there is sort of this uh, archetype, which I don't think is entirely what wrong, do you mean by it, the sorry, way. What do you mean it's hostile to your existence? Uh, well, well, yeah, I was just getting at that, uh, of the angry white male. You know, the sense that my experience growing up was with these very doting, 
uh, elementary school teachers, and we get this from the culture, the sort of nannying, lecturing, almost like uh, you know, headmaster, you know, female headmaster of, of an old boarding school kind of mentality, slapping our wrist and telling us, you can't do that, you can't say that. And, and especially once you factor in this racial component of, you know, being a white man and, and what a terrible thing that is and, and being a man in general. Uh, the portrayal of white men in media and advertising, it's not a very flattering interpretation. And so I think there is something about being a young white man that is alienating and you do feel sort of this hostility. And so intrinsic to our struggle is this combativeness, a sort of rage against the system, and particularly the older generation, which I think has, has kind of allowed this, you know, if not actively, certainly passively allowed it to get this bad. So, you know, we are, we are young and we're pissed off. And we're trying to make a difference. So that, that is definitely part of it. But isn't that a little bit like what Ben Shapiro has accused you of, of being similar to the left? I mean, is, is being red-pilled a bit like being woke in the sense that you, you're just angry about the world and you latch onto some ideas as a way of expressing your anger? Well, I would say that that's actually a really good question. I would say that a lot of these things are not totally um, disconnected in the sense that uh, you look at, um, well, I don't know if I want to compare it to people that are violent, but you look at a lot of the problems our generation has, uh, the depression, the anxiety, what people might call life problems. This is a narrative I think we hear from a lot of these like so-called de-radicalization people is that, well, you know, people have problems and then, you know, like you sort of articulated, they latch on to these ideas and it's sort of like this cult-like fashion or they're being exploited or that, that rage is being misdirected. But I think that's wrong. I mean, why, why is our generation angry? Why, why do we have anxiety and depression and these things? I think it's because of deep-seated structural problems in the society. You know, why can we not get ahead? You look at like student debt where it costs you $100,000. I went to Boston University where tuition was $55,000. Is, is, is being upset about that totally disconnected from politics? You know, and then looking at immigration, where, for example, Charlie Kirk said, we need to staple green cards to diplomas. So you're telling me that I go to school, tuition's $55,000, I'm going bankrupt getting a degree, and Charlie Kirk wants to staple a green card to the child of some Chinese aristocrat who paid full boat and has a Mercedes-Benz parked on Commonwealth Avenue. He's going to now get permanent residence and take a STEM job, you know, or take some kind of uh, other job from me after I, you know. So you understand that a lot of these grievances, college, other things, you know, you look at uh, the job market, things like that. The source of a lot of rage from our generation is not totally disconnected from politics. In a lot of ways, what we're saying about the world and politics provides an explanation and a narrative for why these things are happening. So, but it might you know, be it say, might be connected to to class in 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 a in a sort of financial sense because I mean perhaps you're really angry at Charlie Kirk and Ben Shapiro because they're rich. Certainly, certainly, absolutely. You know, that, that's it. You know, how did Charlie Kirk get rich? Charlie Kirk, I think, makes $750,000 a year. But doesn't that, that, doesn't that undermine your other points against them, that really you're just, it's resentment? Well, but, but where does the resentment come from? The resentment doesn't come from the fact that he has a lot and we have little. The resentment comes from the fact that billionaires are working against the people. You know, so, of course, you're always going to have rich people. And, uh, you know, I'm obviously not left-wing, so I, it doesn't make me mad in itself that there are rich people. But it makes me mad when rich people use their advantage 
against the society, you know, in this class of sort of multinational interests who maybe have no allegiance to our country. And that's not a dog whistle, by the way. It's just true. You know, you have these ampersands or people that really don't have a rooted identity in America. They have a very transnational identity where they, they have a vacation home in Paris and they have a home in L.A. and a home in New York and so on. You know, so I think we look at people like that who betray our nation by, you know, for example, funding Charlie Kirk, who goes around talking about how we need more legal immigrants, you know, that's obviously class warfare against the middle class. You know, if you read Sam Francis, he talked a lot about this in the 1990s. It's the rich and the poor working against the middle. And so I think there is something deeply rooted in class about this, and and it's a generational thing as well. But it's not pure resentment uh, at people being rich. It's, you know, rich people working against the country that maybe made them rich in the first place. Uh, Nick Fuentes, thank you very much for talking to us. It's been enlightening. Yes, thanks so much for having me. I thought it was a great conversation. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode of Americano. And I'd like to encourage you all to give us your feedback, positive comments or constructive comments only, please, to podcast at spectator.co.uk and say anything you like there as long as it's reasonably polite. (laughs) 